This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has made customer experience offered by federal agencies a management imperative. Yet satisfaction scores keep trending down. The Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF, has analyzed the situation and found one thing the government needs to strengthen is how it measures digital services effectiveness. The ITIF's policy fellow, Eric Egan, joins me now. Eric, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So how do you measure digital services effectiveness? How does industry do it? Is there anything they, the government can learn from how the private sector does it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's something as customers of various digital services, you know, we uh, we all kind of experience it every every day when you're going through a website at a bank and it and it, a, a survey prompts after you've completed, you know, some some service and you're able to provide some feedback and, you know, that's kind of a, an active capture of of customer feedback. Um, through a survey method, but um, you know, best best practices also kind of capture passive feedback from from customers using digital services. So that could be abandonment rates on pages and kind of time spent on a particular screen flow. You know, all of that's kind of valuable data that agencies could gather to kind of understand what's happening when when a, a federal customer is using their website, both kind of in a passive way, but then also kind of understanding, listening to their feedback directly in terms of what their user experience is, is like on a website. Right. If 100,000 people are trying to do the same thing and everybody gets hung up at the same step, chances are it's that step, not that 100,000 people are idiots. That's right. Well, does the government do that? They talk about it a lot, but do they have those kinds of monitors built into the digital services they do offer? It's very quite a bit. So, um, you, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head around talking about you know, on the one hand, everyone knows customer satisfaction is is at least in you know those who pay attention to the federal government um, and, and federal IT that it's been it's been dropping and they've they've kind of struggled with it for for years and years. And a lot of agencies have quite good websites and you know they've integrated surveys and they're able to collect these responses. But it's 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 kind of a smaller, or surprisingly small portion of federal agencies and broadly, but also these high impact service providers, which are designated because they provide really critical services and, and because of their size, the federal customer base. Um, so you have some that are, are doing this well, but not as many as, as they should be doing. It's also particularly, you know, I mentioned kind of the passive gathering of, of using data to understand what users are, are kind of doing while they interact with the website. The federal government has the data uh, analytics program that or U.S. analytic, you know, gathers information and it has that structure in place, um, but it doesn't seem like they're really taking full advantage of that program or of the data that, that they could be gathering. Right, because surveys are good insofar as they are there, but mm -hmm. usually it's only people that are upset that are going to even fill out the survey. So that could give you a skewed yeah, picture, too. Yeah. Or maybe you just want to hear from the people who are upset because if everyone else gets through, then then you're okay. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's and the other thing, too, is a good portion of the customer experience, customer satisfaction data that the federal government's gathering right now is through phone surveys. And if you call the IRS, very rarely will you be able to actually talk to someone when you call the IRS. You don't really you're not even given the opportunity to, to leave a phone survey. So it's the way they're kind of measuring data is just kind of full of holes right now, both on how they're measuring traditional channels across the board for customer experience, but also 
you know, the lack of measuring digital experience as well. We're speaking with Eric Egan. He is policy fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And often when agencies talk about modernizing and going to digital services, they talk about the first step is reorganizing and streamlining the business processes, lest you automate a lot of complication that you no longer need. Do you sense that perhaps that step isn't maybe being done that thoroughly so that the services that are deployed maybe aren't as optimal as they could be. That's a good point as well. I think a lot of this, though, is 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 just really modernizing and getting things up to speed in kind of a very basic sense. So, you know, one of the findings from the report was that two of the HISP websites were still not in any way mobile accessible. And this day and age, that's kind of makes a website useless, right? The vast majority of us, and particularly those uh, federal customers who may be accessing these services, typically do so from a smartphone. So to have a website that doesn't address, adjust to screen size or allow you to search is really problematic. And, and for that, it's, it's you know, you, it doesn't require a lot of back-end full reorg of your business processes. It's just kind of modernizing the thing. You can do both, right? Like there is, depending on how uh, the modernization effort and, and and what you want to do with the website, sure, they're, they're, you know, they're, that's an opportunity to, to realign your business processes, be more efficient and have a, have a website reflect that. But other cases, it's just, you know, bringing these things from 1999 to, to 2022. I would think, too, that if you optimize your website and optimize your process for getting services digitally for the mobile platform, it's also a good way to improve your cybersecurity since the security via mobile applications using facial recognition or some other biometric in a few cases is preferable to sticking a password in a traditional website. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point as well. And, it, and so much of cybersecurity, too, is just kind of around user error. So the better, more intuitive you know, user experience you have, you're also kind of shoring up cybersecurity that way, just making things simple, easy. You know, you can use kind of embedded modern website design to make sure that people aren't entering their social security number in a text box or something else. You know, it's those, those little things can, can kind of go a long way. And going back to at least the George W. Bush administration and every successive administration, they've talked about what is now called the single front door to the federal government. Nobody's ever been able to achieve that, but that's still in the Biden administration's management agenda, that if not single, no wrong front door, that needs to translate into the digital services also. Any evidence that it's actually happening? You're totally right. Um, you know, the idea of USA.gov is an ambitious one and really being, as you say, kind of a, a front door, I think is, it's, it's best in class. So if you look at, you know, the UK government, for instance, when you're accessing some service within the UK, it the look and feel of the different departments and the different agencies seems like you're in a single place. Like you're interacting with one entity and that entity is the federal government. Right now, it's if you go from the Social Security Administration's website to IRS to the Patent Office, the design, the font, the color, the navigation, the way that you can search on these things is all really different. That's kind of a problem. That's a user experience problem. And and and, and I think starting with the this digital front door, you know, USA.gov, where you're at least able to have a, a navigational hub, you know, kind of a door to the different different areas within the federal government that a customer may want to access. It's definitely a good idea, but it does just still seem to kind of be like in, in, in the lip service kind of category of, you know, how are we, without taking those other steps of kind of standardizing things, you know, taking advantage of the existing shared services, 
the U.S. web design system, a lot of the things that um, GSAS produced, login.gov, search.gov. So these are common things. The digital front door itself, if it kind of, if you access it and it's really just kind of a redirect to a bunch of differently styled websites, you know, I, I don't know that it'll be as effective. So it's kind of, it's kind of got to be a more holistic approach, I would say. Eric Egan is policy fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. So progress, but still work to be done, you might say. Definitely a lot of work to be done. We'll post this interview along with a link to his white paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 